If you hang around in uh, churches long enough, you'll know that there's uh, a lot of powerful conversion stories out there. Uh, Stories of people uh, coming in powerful ways uh, into a relationship with Christ. And a lot of those stories uh, are very transformative. You might hear a story about someone who's coming from a a sort of very sinful uh, and egregious and and sort of gross lifestyle. Uh, They discover Jesus. uh, They discover that they are sinners. They repent. They convert to faith in Jesus Christ and uh, have a powerful transformation story. Uh, John Newton, the hymn writer uh, that we know Amazing Grace from, uh, was at once a slave trader. He bought and sold people, and yet he came to faith in Jesus Christ, had this powerful conversion moment. So uh, there are uh, stories like that all throughout the history of Christianity and every church around, uh, and those stories often are very hard cases. There are people that we would look at and say, uh, they're never going to come to faith. Uh, They're never going to become religious. They're never going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And yet God moves in their lives. But sometimes the hardest cases are not the sort of overtly sinful or egregious lifestyles of the egregious sinners. Sometimes the hardest cases are the people who already believe that they are religious, right? These are the people who are proud of their spiritual resume and their own personal piety. Uh, This is the person who is passionate about their religious beliefs and their practices. And if you look at the scripture, what you'll discover is that the Apostle Paul was a case like this. A lot of times we think about, and churches talk about Apostle Paul being this, this awful, sort of egregious, terrible sinner. After all, he hunted, hunted and arrested and brutally uh, uh, supervised the execution of Christians. What a terrible person. But actually, what Paul believed is that this was all a part of his faith. He was a man who was very proud of his faith. He believed that his religious convictions dictated his actions. He was passionate about his faith, and that's why he did the things that he does. And it reminds us that sometimes the person that is farther from the kingdom of God is not so much the overt sinner that is out there. Sometimes it is the religious person. That was certainly true in Paul's case, but what it also reminds us, and the good news of the gospel is this, that God isn't stopped by either one of those stories. When God enters a life, he smashes through all of the obstacles that gets in the way. And so the Apostle Paul is converted. He was converted from a pious, religious persecutor of Christians to a humble and compassionate and courageous follower of Jesus Christ. He traveled all throughout the world, planting churches in first century city to first century city, and he was so passionate about his faith that it landed him in a Roman prison by the end of his life. And from that prison, he wrote several letters. But one of those letters is the letter to the church in Ephesians, and that's the the letter that we're going to look at over the next couple weeks here uh, at City Church. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was classic for his overstatements, right? And, And one of the things that he said about the epistle to the Ephesians is that it is the most important document in the New Testament, the gospel in its purest expression. Pretty sure he said that about other books as well, but at least we'll hang our hats on this book of Ephesians. 
So this morning we're going to look at the whole first chapter of the book of Ephesians and uh, try to sum up and frame our time together over the next couple weeks. So listen to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I did not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our time in worship this morning. Thanks for your presence uh, that is with us in the reading of Psalm, in the uh, prayers, Lord, your presence that's with us in worship. We pray now that you would be present with us as we meditate upon your word. We pray that your mysteries, the mysteries of the gospel, would be unfolded to us anew and afresh, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to your truth. So, Father, visit us with your presence. Take your Holy Spirit and seal this truth to our hearts. 
We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at this letter to the Ephesians, which was written to a a church that was in the city of Ephesus. Uh, The city of Ephesus was uh, a very vibrant city uh, situated on the Mediterranean Sea. It was in a region called Asia Minor, which is really, uh, to us, would be modern-day Turkey. And it was a really important city. Uh, It was a commercial center. A lot of people think it was probably the the third or fourth uh, largest city in the Roman Empire, but because of where it was situated, it was also a a center for commerce because it was a gateway uh, to the Far East. And it had lots of interesting things about us. It boasted a theater uh, that fit 20,000 people. Now, that might seem a little small to us with big stadiums around here, uh, but in the ancient world, that was a big deal to have a theater that was that large. Uh, It was also a very religious city. Uh, If you went into this city, there were uh, temples to gods and goddesses all over the place. Uh, The two main goddesses were the goddess Diana uh, and the goddess Artemis. And uh, in fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world uh, was in Ephesus and was a temple uh, to one of these goddesses. So it was a, a very religious city. And so Paul comes into Ephesus and begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by and large, the Ephesian uh, people didn't take very kindly uh, to Paul's words. Uh, It sort of got him in trouble in a lot of different ways because he wasn't afraid. Uh, He wasn't afraid to speak against the pagan religions that were centered around Diana and Artemis. And uh, he wasn't afraid to speak against the, the religious economy that had been built around the worship of these goddesses. And so when Paul began to speak, not only did he speak against their religion, but he really uh, uh, hit their wallets. He really uh, interrupted the economy that was built around this idol worship. And so at the very end, Paul is driven out of the city of Ephesus by a very, very large mob who wanted to kill him on the spot. Uh, for what he was saying. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 18, uh, in Acts chapter 20. But what you learn about Paul is he was sort of getting himself in this trouble everywhere he went. And so uh, when our letter is written, he's in jail. He's in a Roman prison, so he's got lots of time, and he writes this masterful letter while in that prison in Rome, this masterful letter uh, to those believers that he had met and nurtured for three years in the city of Ephesus. Now, if you were paying attention to the passage as we read it, there's a lot in this section, right? And there's lots of commas because Paul often spoke in run-on sentences. And if you didn't catch that in the English translation, uh, there's a lot of run-on sentences in the English translation, but actually if you go to the Greek, what you find is this whole passage that we read is really just two sentences. So I, I, was, uh, I wanted to be an English teacher for a long time, and what they always told me is avoid the run-on sentences. Make your point, make a period, and then move on. Well, Paul didn't take that advice. This whole section is two run-on sentences, but they communicate something very, very simple that is true of this passage, but really is the theme of the whole book. So if you're going to summarize the theme of Paul's run-on sentences, the theme of this whole book, it all boils down to this. You are rich. You are rich. 
now live like it. You are rich, now live like it. So let's look at that first run-on sentence that establishes this idea that you are rich, that as a follower of Jesus, you are wealthy beyond compare. Think about verse 3 where it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When I was a kid, uh, there was a show on TV called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, hosted by Robin Leach. Uh, and the tagline was, uh, I wrote it down, caviar, or no, champagne wishes and caviar dreams. So if you're uh, old enough to remember that show, it was a pretty interesting show. Uh, in fact, I did a little research on it this year. In 1994, uh, they profiled one particular billionaire on that show. Uh, they profiled his homes, which I think at that point was the, the most expensive home in the United States. Uh, they talked about his helicopters. They talked about his cars. Uh, they interviewed his wife, Marla. And believe it or not, who was it? Donald Trump. Who knew? Who knew, right, how that story would play out? But I can remember as a kid watching that show and watching all these people and just wondering whether they lived in a different world in which I lived. Their wealth was so extreme and it was so extravagant that it seemed like it was from another planet. Well, friends, our passage this morning talks about an extreme wealth, but it talks about an extreme wealth of a very different kind. Have you ever heard the saying, uh, all the money in the world, right? Uh, you, might, you might hear it, somebody might say, I, I wouldn't do X, or I wouldn't do this thing uh, if for all the money in the whole world. And of course, we know that's hyperbole, because we could never possibly gather up all the money that exists in the whole world, but we sort of understand what we're saying with that. Well, here's what Paul is saying here. He says that all the wealth and all the spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly realms, all of it is yours, all of it. Every spiritual blessing that comes from the hand of God is yours. You own it. It is in your possession, and all of that wealth is far greater than anything that this world has to offer. You are rich in Christ. Maryland uh, has this, these college funds. I don't know if you've heard about these. Um, uh, these uh, uh, they're advertised on the radio all the time, these Maryland college funds, and, and we've set some up for our kids. And, and what's so interesting about them is you can contribute piecemeal here and there, but they also provide a link, and you can send that link to, to grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends, and, and they can follow that link, and they can all contribute uh, to that college fund for that child. Well, I thought about this week as I looked at, that, at this passage because when it comes to our spiritual wealth, what this passage tells us is there's lots of contributors. But principally, the contributors to our spiritual wealth are all the members of the Trinity. All the members of the Trinity contribute to our spiritual riches. God the Father first contributes. It tells us in verse 4, that he chose us before the foundation of the world. 
Whenever I hear that verse, I think of myself on the playground, on the schoolyard, when, when you're picking teams, right? And your biggest fear is that you're going to be picked last. Well, what this tells us is that God chose us from the foundation of the world, that we were predestined to be adopted. Verse 5, that before you and I were ever born, God had us marked. He had us chosen to be adopted into his family. And so you and I, we've been enfolded into the family of God as sons and daughters. And so God the Father contributes to our wealth, but God the Son also, Jesus Christ, contributes to our wealth. Really, Jesus is the hinge point for our wealth. He is the hinge point of the the whole work of redemption. And you sort of realize that as you read the book, because if you read the whole book of Ephesians in one sitting, what you'll learn is that phrase, in him, or in Christ, is the phrase that is mentioned more than anything else in the book. It's mentioned 35 times in the book, which tells us that Jesus really is the hero of this gospel story. Verse 7 tells us that we've been redeemed through his blood, that we have been forgiven from all of our sins, but it also tells us that we get the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Now think about that for a second. We all understand what an inheritance is, right? We all understand the concept of what a trust fund baby is. This is This is a trust fund child that grows up, that has an inheritance, that never once in their whole life has to worry about money because it's never gonna run out because they inherited that from a wealthy parent or from a wealthy uncle or whatever it is, so they have no financial concerns whatsoever. Well, what Ephesians tells us is that we receive Christ's inheritance, that all the spiritual blessings that are reserved for God's Son, that are reserved for God's children, all of those blessings are given to us. All of them, nothing is withheld. In him, the mysteries of redemption and salvation are revealed. It says that in verse 9. So God the Father contributes to our wealth. God the Son contributes to our wealth. The Holy Spirit, too, contributes to our wealth. He seals the promises of God to us in such a way that they cannot be taken away, right? Our financial wealth, that can get lost in the stock market. We worry about downturns in the economy. Something happened where all that wealth disappears. Well, in Christ, that wealth never disappears because the Holy Spirit seals it to us. The Holy Spirit binds us to Christ. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. His presence is the proof to us that God will make good on his promises. And so this is Paul's run-on sentence. You almost get the sense that he's sort of falling all over himself to explore the depth of spiritual riches that those in Jesus Christ receive. It was true for the Ephesians, and it is true for you and I as well. Friends, that wealth is ours If you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, you get it all. All of it is yours because of Jesus. That's his first run-on sentence, but his second run-on sentence builds on it. You are rich. Now, there's always an action there. Now, live like it. Live like it. You are rich. Now, live like it. He prays that for the Ephesians. 
He prays that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he's called you to, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now think about that for a second. Of all the things that Paul could pray for this church, of all the things that he could pray for regarding this church, he prays principally that they would discover their true wealth in Jesus and then that they would live like it. He doesn't pray for them to have more material prosperity. He doesn't pray principally that they would uh, escape lots of persecution because they were facing a lot of persecution. He prays that they would understand their wealth and live in light of it. I don't know if you've ever heard stories about people who are actually very rich but don't live like it. I don't know if you ever met someone like this. These are people that have uh, tons of money in the bank account, but they still sort of wear shabby clothing, and uh, they might still uh, uh, clip coupons and, and won't shop for anything that isn't on sale. Uh, they save everything. They refuse to throw anything away, and yet at the same time, they're millionaires, right? Maybe you've met somebody like this. I actually read this week that Warren Buffett is kind of like this. Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest guys here in the United States, made his wealth through uh, shrewd investments. Uh, apparently, his practice is to eat at McDonald's because it's cheap. Think about that. He eat at McDonald's because it's cheap. And he owns a couple of homes, but he spends, he, he lives most of his life in his, the house that he bought for $31,500 in 1958, right? He's a wealthy guy who doesn't act like it in a lot of different ways. Well, here's what Paul realized. He realized that the Ephesians were wealthy in Christ, but they were living as if they were spiritual paupers. They were living as if they were spiritually poor. Maybe they didn't realize what exactly they had. Maybe they knew it cognitively, but they didn't quite believe it in their hearts. Maybe they sort of struggled to know how it applied to their lives day in and day out. Maybe they were deceived by the material wealth that motivates so many people to live then and, of course, to live now. Or maybe they were so fixated on what they didn't have that they actually missed out on what they actually had in Jesus Christ. It's Christmas season, right? Or, well, Christmas season's over now, but we're, we're still in the hangover phase from the Christmas season. And one of the stories I always remember in Christmas season is, is a couple of years ago, it was probably eight years ago, uh, the kids were very young, so it was like a sea of toys on Christmas morning, right? And uh, I can remember one Christmas in particular, uh, the kids had just finished opening up all the gifts and uh, the, the wrapping paper was still all over the ground. You couldn't see the ground because the wrapping paper uh, was so much. And then one of our children came to us crying. And, and that child was crying because a, a $2 trinket that they would wanted for Christmas, they didn't get. And they were just 
broken up all about it. And it was one of those freeze frame moments where I'm looking at the, the teary eyes of a child and you can sort of see in the background behind the child as well. And in the background behind the child is this sea of gifts from parents, from aunts, from uncles, uh, from, from grandparents, uh, more than you could even count. And yet they were so fixated on that $2 little trinket that they didn't get and that broke them up. Friends, I think sometimes we fall into that same sort of temptation. In fact, I think this is exactly Paul's point here in the passage. Maybe it's a point that they needed to hear in the church of Ephesus. Maybe it's a point that we need to hear as well. Maybe you're here and you're given to complaining about not having this thing or that thing. Maybe you have become fixated on all the things that you haven't been given. Maybe you've been deceived about the true value of what Jesus offers versus what the world offers. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you need your heart to be enlightened, just as Paul prayed here. Because friends, here's the truth. You and I, we have been given it all. All of the spiritual gifts in the heavenly realm has been given to you. It's been given to me. We are rich. Now it is time to start living like it. Let's pray.